Our next case is in re RSH, and we'll hear from the appellant. May it please the court, I am Assistant Appellant Defender Candace Washington, and I represent the respondent, Rita. I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. It is undisputed that the trial court violated Rita's statutory right to confrontation. The state also concedes that Rita did not fail to preserve the confrontation argument for appellate review. So the question that needs to be resolved is, if we remove the findings that were improperly incorporated from the report, does the commitment order contain sufficient findings of fact to support the ultimate finding of danger to self? The answer is no. The findings only demonstrate that Rita was mentally ill and that is not enough to subject someone to inpatient involuntary commitment. Therefore, this court- Ms. Washington, this is a fairly basic question, but let me, it would help me, I think, to understand the rest of the argument. Are the written findings shown on the order all derived from the testimony or do some of them come from the report? Uh, it's my understanding that the findings that the court actually made on the order only appear to come from the testimony at the hearing. Okay. I, yeah. So we can, we can look at that and not have to X out anything in order to understand the rest of your argument. Mm -hmm, I think okay. that's correct. Thank you. Okay. So getting into the findings then. So per the Court of Appeals opinion, the findings before this court would only be the unchallenged findings. So this means we don't consider that finding of fact number two, which says respondent continues to hear voices and state she wants to kill herself. It was challenged below and it wasn't part of the Court of Appeals analysis. So the remaining unchallenged findings would be that the respondent told staff she doesn't need medication, respondent has been diagnosed with affective schizo disorder, respondent has a history of noncompliance with meds, respondent is unable to have rational discussions with the team about treatment slash discharge, respondent runs on the unit screaming constantly, respondent shows no sign of improvement, respondent's meds are being changed and requires supervision. Now, these findings do not demonstrate danger to self. In this case, we're talking about two pertinent definitions of danger to self. That first definition is a person is dangerous to self if they have attempted or threatened suicide and there is a reasonable probability of suicide absent treatment. The second definition is what you've been hearing about in the other cases, which is that two-pronged approach about whether the respondent is unable to care for herself and the reasonable probability of suffering serious physical debilitation in the near future absent treatment. So those are our definitions. So addressing the suicide definition for danger to self first, there's nothing in these unchallenged findings to show that Rita threatened suicide. There's certainly nothing to demonstrate a reasonable probability of suicide absent treatment. The findings only describe Rita's medication noncompliance and symptoms of mental illness. So these findings don't satisfy that suicide definition. If you want an example of the type of findings that might be able to satisfy um, this suicide definition, it's easy to compare the findings that were in the order to the findings that were in that improper report, right? That report had graphic plans for Rita's suicide and stated that Rita had the means to carry out these plans, access to those means at home. So I would suggest that arguably that report would be the kind of findings that you would need to demonstrate danger to self under this definition. Well, and the, we don't have the, that the, here in that these, order. These findings say, and I'm picking and choosing, I'm not reading all of them, quote, she wants to kill herself, close quote. Mm -hmm. Has a history of noncompliance with meds. 
uh, is unable to have rational discuss discussions about treatment slash discharge uh, and shows no signs of improvement. Mm -hmm. If you put all of that together, does, is it fair reading of the order to say that we have a contemporaneous expression of suicidal intent covered, coupled with a lack of progress and no sign that that's likely to change? Is that a fair reading of the order or not? Okay. So if you consider the finding that she said she, let me read it. I mean, I understand there's a different issue about whether there's sufficient evidence to support the mm. finding about the contemporaneousness of, suic of mm. suicide, but if we take that at face value mm. at the moment. So even if you consider that finding that states she wants to kill herself with the rest of the findings, to me, that only demonstrates that attempted or threatened suicide. If you consider the statement she wants to kill herself as a factual finding from the trial court, that only demonstrates she threatened um, suicide, right? You still have to demonstrate there is a reasonable probability of suicide absent treatment. There, there are no findings in the order that talk about, as I said, the findings from that report that have like the plans and say she has the access to um, carry out those plans. That would arguably demonstrate the reasonable probability of suicide absent treatment. The trial court didn't do, make do, those do findings. We, do we look at whether she's got a plan to f for suicide while she's still in the facility, or do we look at it on the assumption that she's likely to be released? You would have to look at it as she is in the facility, because the definition for danger to self is about you have to show that you're presently a danger to yourself. So we have to consider um, under the suicide definition, is there a reasonable probability of suicide absent treatment? And these findings don't show that. So we've addressed the suicide. Okay. Um, so simply stating that you want to kill yourself is not enough, as I've discussed, even if we consider that other finding that's not before this court. So to address the two-pronged definition for danger to self, what we're challenging here is that second prong that requires a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future absent treatment. So this requires the trial court to make forward-looking findings of fact. There has to be some type of predictive analysis that shows the symptoms of mental illness will endanger the respondent in the near future. And that's kind of the Court of Appeals, um, I guess, layman's explanation of it. But you have to demonstrate a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future. It's not enough to just describe the respondent's current conditions at the time of the hearing. Um, so I have two case examples in Ray, JPS, and Watley, where the Court of Appeals said the trial court's findings weren't sufficient. So in JPS, the trial court made findings about respondent's need for forced medications, restraints, grandiose thoughts, and the fact that the respondent actually attempted suicide by taking pills. And the Court of Appeals held these findings didn't satisfy either definition for danger to self. And this case is also like Watley, where the Court of Appeals said the findings weren't sufficient. So in Watley, the trial court found that the respondent was exhibiting psychotic behavior that endangered her and her newborn child, that she was bipolar and experiencing a manic stage, that she continues to exhibit disorganized thinking that causes her not to be able to properly care for herself. The court also found that respondent needed medication monitoring that she did not plan to follow up as outpatient, 
and that she had very poor insight and judgment and needs continued stabilization. The court also found that the respondent remained paranoid at the time of the hearing. So the Court of Appeals noted that these findings reflected mental illness, but did not demonstrate a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future absent treatment. And these findings in Watley are very similar to the findings in the present case, where the trial court described Rita's medication noncompliance and need for supervision because her medication was being adjusted. You cannot hold someone just to continue uh, the medication. They must be dangerous to self. If they no longer meet that statutory criteria for danger to self, they must be released. And given the facts of this case, it's easy to understand you know, why a trial court would want to order commitment in an effort to help Rita, but wanting to help is simply not enough to order inpatient involuntary commitment. The respondent has to meet the statutory criteria for danger to self, and the trial court must make written findings to that effect. These involuntary commitments involve significant deprivations of liberty, and therefore commitment is only warranted for those who are at the greatest risk of harm to themselves. The trial court's findings did not demonstrate that Rita was a danger to herself under the statutes, and this court must reverse the Court of Appeals decision. If this court doesn't have any more questions during my opening, I reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court, my name is James Whalen and I represent the state. When RSH's mother came home from her trip abroad, she found that her daughter had stopped taking her medicine, was suicidal, and was hearing voices pushing her to kill herself. She took her daughter to the emergency room because it was, in fact, an emergency. RSH posed a genuine danger to her own well-being and she needed medical treatment. Unfortunately, RSH did not materially improve between when she was first admitted to the hospital and her involuntary commitment hearing. Dr. Brown testified and the trial court found that RSH had not improved. She continued to hear voices. She stated that she felt like she could not take it anymore and wanted to die. That she uh, was unable to control her behavior and her moods. Her moods were erratic and she would run around the hospital unit screaming uncontrollably. She was not able to rationally discuss a discharge plan with her doctors, and she insisted she did not need treatment at all. This was in large part because her doctors had not yet found a combination of medicine that could treat her worsening symptoms. Dr. Brown explained that this is not a case where RSH could simply pick up where she left off, start taking her medicine again, and quickly get back to normal. Dr. Brown explained, each time RSH stops taking her medicine, it becomes that much harder for doctors to identify a new combination of medicine that will treat her symptoms, silence the voices, get her back to normal, and get her home safely. The trial court heard this evidence and made factual findings based on Dr. Brown's testimony. It then made its ultimate findings that RSH was mentally ill and dangerous to self and ordered her involuntarily committed for no more than 30 days, which was affirmed by the Court of Appeals. And this court should affirm the Court of Appeals for two main reasons. First, the incorporation of the examiner's report was harmless error. The, Dr. Brown's testimony provides competent evidence for each of the trial court's findings of fact and its ultimate findings. 
Second, the trial court's findings of fact are supported by su sufficient competent evidence in the record and are themselves sufficiently forward-looking to satisfy the requirements of the statute. Turning to the first issue involving the examiner's report, I direct this court's attention to page 16 in the record. On page 16, this is the involuntary commitment order, the trial court checked box number four. And in checking that box, the trial court incorporated the examiner's report. And that was an error, but that is the extent of the error, checking box number four. The factual findings listed below in, in section five each come directly from Dr. Brown's testimony. And in her brief, and as you heard today, RSH concedes that for all but one of the trial court's findings. The only trial court finding that RSH argues is not supported by Dr. Brown's testimony is the second one, that RSH continued to hear voices and stated that she wants to kill herself. But that finding also is supported by competent evidence from Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown testified on page six of the trial court, of the, of the, of the hearing transcript, page six, that before coming to the emergency room, RSH stated that she was hearing voices telling her to kill herself, that she was scared. While she was in the hospital, uh, and at the time of the hearing, Dr. Brown testified that she complained about hearing, continued to complain about hearing voices, that she uh, couldn't take it anymore, and wanted to die. And finally, on page seven, Dr. Brown testifies that RSH has not improved. Taking those findings is, together. Is, is it your argument that a finding that I wanted to die is the equivalent of a expression of suicidal intent? Your Honor, I think taking the testimony together that she wanted to die because she couldn't take it anymore because she was hearing voices commanding her to kill herself and that she had not improved from when she was first admitted to the emergency room, that is competent evidence. I think that evidence... I mean, I think there's a question that is competent evidence. I guess is that evidence that would support the finding that the trial court actually made, which at least as I read it is of a statement of contemporaneous intent as of the time of the hearing. Yes, Your Honor, it is competent evidence of that. Uh, I, I do believe Dr. Brown's testimony could be read multiple ways, but the trial court made its finding based on in-person witnessing of the testimony. And it, again, it's not simply that she stated she wants to die, but that she uh, is hearing voices telling her to kill herself, that she wants to die, and that she has not improved the whole time she's in the hospital. So that takes us all the way up to the day of the involuntary commitment hearing. The trial court could have made a different finding, but the trial court found that that is an expression of suicide, suicidal intent, and that uh, that finding is binding on this court on appeal because it's supported by competent evidence. I will emphasize that uh, there was some discussion um, about the two alter alternative definitions of uh, dangerousness to self. There's the suicide definition and then the, the, the debilitation definition. Uh, the suicidal definition does not apply in this case because RSH did not attempt suicide in advance of coming to the hospital. So I, I think the state would have a strong argument that the record facts support that she may attempt if she leaves, um, and that falls into the first definition as well. But w the state is not arguing that she attempted suicide before coming to the hospital. There's no evidence of that in the record. Uh, so what we're discussing is the first definition, which the second prong involves the uh, the, the debilitation, the serious physical debilitation. A person who is suicidal 
has a risk of serious physical debilitation. But a person who, even if, uh, even if taking that part, portion of the second finding out, the statement about self-harm, a person who is hearing voices that are commanding her to kill herself, that is given up, that wants to die, that cannot take it anymore, that will not take her medicine, insists that she does not need treatment at all, and who cannot control her behavior because she runs around the unit screaming uncontrollably, that person also suffers a risk of physical, serious physical debilitation. Debilitation being that she would not be able to carry out any functions and be limited. Uh, I imagine uh, the, 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 the image I have in my head of someone who's physically debilitated due to a mental illness is someone who can't get out of bed in the morning, who is totally and completely locked down. And that is exactly what the trial court uh, is describing in someone who hears voices pushing her to kill herself uh, constantly, cannot control her behavior, uh, will not take her medicine. And I want to emphasize it's not simply that and she so, will not take so, so again, just to make sure I'm following you, it is not your contention then that if a person is, even, even though they may not have attempted suicide prior to their uh, commitment uh, expresses the intent to commit, arguably expresses the intent to commit suicide upon leaving the hospital, that would not satisfy the second prong of the uh, part of the statute that you're proceeding under? Uh, it would satisfy, yes. Yes, Your Honor, sorry. It, it would satisfy, yes. Uh, uh, I, was, I, was, I mean, you said your idea of uh, Debilitation was the person that couldn't get out of bed, and I was trying to make sure I was, was following what your argument was because I wasn't. I thought you had been going the other way for a second. I appreciate the clarification. And, and um, I was confusing, so I, I will no. clarify. Uh, th there are multiple ways to become physically debilitated. Uh, the state maintains that RSH was suicidal. That is supported by the record. That's supported by the findings of fact. A person who is suicidal, certainly a su person who attempts or completes suicide, would fall squarely within the definition of physical debilitation. Um, I, I was simply uh, adding that to the extent this court feels that the, the factual finding about statement stating that she uh, would uh, that she wants to kill herself rather than wants to die, a person that wants to die due to hearing voices that are pushing her to kill herself, even if she doesn't say that she's going to act on that, the fact that she wants to die and she's being pushed to kill herself by the voices in her head. There's no medical treatment plan, and she would not abide by one, even if there was. That person also fits the definition. Um, so under either, either whether the, the, the fact remains in consideration or that portion of fact number two is removed, either way, uh, she fits squarely within that definition. I do want to emphasize and, and turn, uh, let me begin by, by, by clarifying with under the, the, the harmless error all of what we've just discussed resolves that, that question. Uh, the trial court's second finding of fact does come from Dr. Brown's testimony. As, uh, as my friend explained, the, 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 the uh, examiner's report has tremendous detail that is not included in the trial court's findings of fact. The examiner's report is a separate thing. The findings of fact come from Dr. Brown's testimony. And therefore, because those facts do support the ultimate findings, that incorporation was harmless error. Turning, and we have discussed it at length some already, but turning to the second issue 
which involves whether those findings of fact are themselves sufficient uh, under this standard. It's important to turn back to the language of the statute. The language of the statute requires the trial court to do two things. The trial court must make ultimate findings that the respondent is mentally ill and dangerous to self or others. And then it must record the facts that support those findings. Record the facts that support those findings. This court explained the relationship between evidentiary facts and ultimate findings in State v. Fuller. The relationship is ordinary logic. An ultimate finding is the product of applying ordinary logic to an evidentiary finding. And that distinction is critical because the statute does not require trial courts to author lengthy opinions where they explain all of their, uh, all of their reasons, all of the rationality, all of the logic. They are required to document the facts and make the findings. And on appeal, the question for this court is not to parse the nuance of the trial court's reasoning, but simply review the findings of fact and determine if a rational trier of fact, based on those facts, could come to the ultimate findings that the trial court came to. And certainly that is the case here. It is reasonable to read the facts and find that someone who is hearing voices pushing her to kill herself, states that she wants to die or that she wants to kill herself, that uh, is unable to control her behavior, runs around the unit screaming, does not have medicine that treats those symptoms, her doctors had not identified medicine, and that uh, has shown that in the past she would not and has expressed, expressed that she would not take those medicines even if there was competent medicine uh, to treat those symptoms. All of those facts taken together, and Fuller does require a whole, holistic view, those facts taken together uh, certainly support the finding that a that the that respondent that RSH uh, was in danger of physical debilitation. I'd like to finally turn to uh, what's what the implications of RSH's argument are more broadly, uh, and that's come up several times in the arguments today. RSH suffers from schizoaffective disorder which is a combination of schizophrenia, that's the hearing of voices, and, and mood disorders, which generally is, a, is bipolar disorder or a depression. It is not uncommon for someone who suffers from a mood disorder or schizoaffective disorder to give up hope, to, to not believe that there is anything anyone can do for them to bring them out of their symptoms. That is a symptom of depression, is that they believe there is no hope. It is not uncommon for someone who believes that there is no hope to refuse medical treatment because, of course, you refuse it. You don't believe it will work. When RSH's mother brought her to the emergency room, the statute creates an opportunity for the doctors to intervene when the facts available in this record are before the doctor. And the legislative history of the statute directly contemplate amending the statute in order to better reflect what the doctors are seeing and allow the doctors to better treat their patients. And that's exactly what's going on here. RSH has been hospitalized multiple times. When, R when RSH stops taking her medicine, her symptoms of her schizoaffective disorder, which include both the hearing of voices and the depression that makes her believe she cannot be treated, resurface. In those instances, the statute directly contemplates the doctor intervening to provide her with the type of medicine that she needs to be able to regain that confidence and hope to regain control of her own medical decisions. The record shows that when she's on her medicine and doing well, 
her mother can help her continue taking her medicine. That is the goal of involuntary commitment, is to get a person back in the place where they can go home safely. If there are no further questions, Your Honors, uh, I, I do, the state does ask that the court affirm the Court of Appeals and affirm the involuntary commitment order. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. This court can consider the finding that uh, Rita said she wants to kill herself or not. That still does not satisfy either definition for danger to self. The state is talking about depression and saying that an example of physical debilitation would be a person who is suicidal and can't get out of bed. But there is no finding that Rita can't get out of bed. And there was no finding that Rita has some depression. She suffers from affective schizo disorder. The state is also talking about how the doctor wanted Rita to be able to get to a point where it was safe for go home, excuse me, safe to go home, and that is the purpose of these statutes. Inpatient involuntary commitment is not the only option. If Rita is no longer presently a danger to herself under the statutes, the statutes require her to be released. It's not like if she's no longer a danger to herself, the court is just going to send her home just because she's having, still having these threats of suicide but doesn't meet that other half of the definition. Outpatient commitment or outpatient treatment, it's not necessarily commitment, excuse me, is an option. When we're talking about outpatient um, treatment, that is aimed at preventing the type of danger to self that actually warrants inpatient involuntary commitment. So there are other options here. Saying that you wanted to um, keep Rita until it's safe for her to go home, you know, continue to treat her medications isn't enough to satisfy that definition of danger to self under the statutes. And again, the state was talking about the implications. We're not just sending people who are threatening suicide home. There are other options for the trial courts to do. So I contend that the findings still do not demonstrate danger to self. And there are three different definitions for danger to self. I don't think it's appropriate to say that the fact that Rita was suicidal demonstrates a reasonable probability of serious physical debilitation in the near future. Debilitation is about some type of weakened state. I could see how maybe if somebody wasn't eating and they were severely malnourished, that would demonstrate some type of serious physical debilitation, but there were no findings about that. There were no findings that she was so depressed and not eating and so malnourished that she was suicidal and physically debilitating. So the findings in this case just aren't sufficient. You can't hold someone in inpatient involuntary commitment just because you want to ensure that they're safe if they don't meet that definition of danger to self. The trial courts and the doctors can recommend outpatient treatment. We're not just sending um, these respondents back to the streets. So these findings don't demonstrate danger to self under either definition. And we ask this court to reverse, reverse the Court of Appeals decision. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to both. All right. Oh, yeah.